We are finishing up our Christmas message series that we've been in for now three weeks, and we've been talking about the promises kept by the coming of Jesus, by Christmas, with all that Christmas means, with all that's included, with all that's wrapped up in Christmas, it's all about promises being kept. And that's what Jesus did. It's what He alone could do. So we haven't been talking about all of them. That would take a lot more than three weeks, but we have been focusing in on three very specific and I think very profound promises that Jesus alone has kept and that we celebrate at Christmas. So as we wrap up this series, uh, we're going to talk today about the promise of rescue. The promise of rescue. That's something we all need, something we all want, something we all uh, feel in the core of our being a need for. And the problem is that uh, along the way, there's so many different distractions from finding the only source of that rescue, and that's in the Lord Jesus. And as we've done through this series each week, we've looked back at the very beginning of our story to understand why we need these promises kept. And so we're going to do the same thing. And so I just want to draw your attention, first of all, and it's on the screens as well, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And in Genesis 3, we see the pronouncing of judgment on Adam and Eve for their rebellion, for their sin, and also on Satan, on the great deceiver, on the serpent, for his role in all of that. And so as God is speaking to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent, he's pronouncing judgment, he says this, Uh, to the serpent, which is Satan, manifested. Genesis 3.15, he says this, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This very brief statement is incredibly profound with its implications. And what's going on here and what God is, is talking about, what He's doing here, is He is prophetically looking forward through time to the point where everything that had been done, that He was pronouncing judgment on, the curse, the fall, all of it, that He was directly addressing, He was looking ahead and proclaiming the truth and reality of the fact that all would not stay that way. All would not remain as it was in that moment. He was proclaiming and promising rescue. This little passage and this little statement uh, for centuries has been referred to as the Proto-Evangelium. Try saying that ten times fast. Don't. You'll you'll hurt yourself. Proto-Evangelium. And what that means in English is the first gospel. The first gospel. And it's called that because what is identified here is the first proclamation, the first announcement of the good news, the gospel. The hope in the midst of darkness. Joy in the midst of despair. Rescue in the midst of judgment. That's what's being proclaimed here. And certainly... Uh, it's not too difficult to see who is being addressed. When God says, He will strike your head, He's speaking of the coming Messiah. 
His Son, who had been decreed and ordained before the foundations of the world, that He would be the Lamb that was slain. He's speaking of Jesus, the coming Messiah. Even here in the garden, He's proclaiming that promise. And the you that's being addressed here is certainly none other than the great deceiver, our great enemy, Satan. And certainly he would get a blow in. He would uh, orchestrate and bring about things that led to Christ's death on the cross, even though above him and beyond his own orchestration was God's sovereign and perfect orchestration. But Satan would certainly have his day, but it was so minimal compared to what would happen to him. It wasn't a defeat that he would bring about on the Messiah. It was simply a a very limited blow. But what Messiah would do would be a death blow. That's what he would deal. Certainly, the striking of Satan's head would happen. The crushing of his head would happen at the hands and the feet of Messiah as he hung on the cross. So the first gospel is proclaimed here, and it's the promise of rescue. So right away in our story, in the despair, in seeing everything falling down, there is hope, there is light. And that's just like God, isn't it, for Him to do? To say, this isn't the end of your story. What you're going through right now, the darkness that's around you, the despair you're feeling, it's not the end. There is hope. There is joy. There's another part of your story. And we see it here at the very beginning. And as we've looked at in the weeks leading up to this, we've seen not just the promise, but more importantly, the promise kept, the promise fulfilled. And that's certainly the case with what we want to see today. The promise was there would be rescue sent. Messiah would come. The enemy would be defeated. And in Luke chapter 2, certainly a very familiar passage of Scripture around Christmas time, something we'll uh, most likely be reading together in our, fa- our family gatherings, Luke chapter 2, we're going to see the promise kept. This promise of rescue kept, realized, made reality. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. And we'll look at verses 11 through 14. But verse 11 says this, Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the promised one, the Lord, the divine Messiah, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And certainly I think you know and are familiar with the fact that uh, the people that this announcement is made to uh, are shepherds that were keeping watch over their flocks by night. And they were gathered together, and, and in the midst of complete darkness, no lights around them except for maybe a, a flickering flame of a campfire to keep them warm, in the midst of stillness and darkness, this angel appears, and bright light shines all around them, brighter than anything we can imagine. And of course, they were terrified, and this announcement is given to them. And the angel says, this will be the sign for you. What I'm talking about, I want you to be able to find. I want you to be able to go and see for yourself. So I'm going to give you a sign so you know what I'm talking about is the truth. So you know how to find this. This is what the sign is. This will be the sign for you, the angel says. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly... 
there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, saying, not singing, by the way, little note, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. You know, without the favor of God, without the grace of God, from the highest heaven, there would be no peace on earth. Only because of God's grace, only because of His undeserved favor and merit, only because of that and only by that do we have any hope of peace on earth. No politician, no movement or active man, no great cure for all of our ails, no source of wealth will ever provide the peace on earth and in our lives that we need. The rescue that produces peace is not going to come from any other source but God Himself. And that's what was wrapped up in this announcement. Grace, mercy, peace, rescue, hope. And it all came wrapped up in a tightly wrapped baby. That was the announcement. That was the promise kept, the promise of rescue. And like an iceberg, you know how with, uh, with an iceberg you see, the, you see the top, but there's a whole lot more going on beneath the surface. Like an iceberg, there's a lot beneath the surface of this passage, particularly in verse 12, the sign that the angel said he was providing, the sign of this announcement that the shepherds could go and see for themselves. Verse 12 said, This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And there's a lot beneath the surface of that verse. At his birth, Jesus was most likely laid in a stone manger instead of the wooden ones we usually see in the nativity scenes. Once again, bubble burst. Sorry about that. But it was most likely a stone manger. That's what was typically used at this point in history and in this region. And people that study these kinds of details all their life, the historian and theologian types, um, they just about all of them believe that the shepherds in this account that we're, we're reading about here in this famous passage Uh, the shepherds in the region of Bethlehem, that most likely they watched over not just any lambs, but lambs specifically used for the Passover sacrifice, which was just about to happen. That they kept the, the special Passover lambs that would be used in the temple for the sacrifice. And if that's the case, certainly not just any lambs would do. Couldn't just have any ordinary lamb for such a special occurrence like the great Passover. They had to be spotless, unblemished lambs. And to help make sure that that was the case, the shepherds would wrap these little lambs tightly in cloth and then place them in the stone mangers with a lip around them to keep them completely safe. Those stone mangers doubled as water troughs and feeding troughs for the animals, but they also served as protection to keep these Passover lambs safe, to keep them spotless and unblemished for their purpose, which was sacrifice. The Passover sacrifice. And isn't that just astounding to think about? So, 
If that's true, and it likely is, then it obviously wasn't coincidence that the angels came to the shepherds first. The shepherds that were watching over the Passover lambs, it would not have been any coincidence at all. I mean, we know it wasn't a coincidence, but it it adds to the weight of the fact that there was no coincidence at all here. This was intentional that the shepherds were the first to hear this announcement by the angels. Because these shepherds, of all shepherds, of any shepherds, these shepherds would have definitely understood what the cloths and manger in this announcement were all about. That this baby, this promised Messiah, was in fact heaven's perfect lamb that was being proclaimed and announced to the shepherds watching over not just any lamb, but the Passover lambs. This was the the proclamation that the great, the ultimate Passover lamb was here as promised. And in His coming was the promise of rescue fulfilled. That Christ's first cradle was likely the type of stone manger used for those special sacrificial lambs was certainly a big big, undeniable statement about the reason He was here. The reason He came. And friends, that needs to be the reason that we celebrate this season and every season. It's because of rescue. Rescue that cost everything to Him which made it free to us. That's the reason that we celebrate. That's the reason we need to continue to celebrate long after Christmas is over. You see, the Savior's manger that He occupied was in the shadow of His cross. The Savior's manger was in the shadow of His cross. Jesus was born to die so that we could be born again and live forever. But it would not happen apart from Him coming to die, going to that cross, which meant the manger He was placed in was also in the shadow of His cross. Here's what Galatians chapter 4, verses 4-5 through tell us. It, it proves all of this. It validates everything that I'm expressing to you. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. The Apostle Paul writes this, looking back to this time directly that we just read about in Luke chapter 2. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. When the time came to completion, he writes, or, or at the perfect time, at just the right time, when the time came to completion, God, speaking of the Father, sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The whole purpose of Jesus, God the Son, the eternal Son, the Creator of all things, the entire purpose for Him coming and coming as man, taking on to Himself Humanity, the one who created all of humanity, becoming humanity, the whole purpose of that was to rescue us, to free us. To free us and rescue us from under the weight of the law that we couldn't lift 
off of ourselves. The burden, the crushing weight of the law we couldn't do anything about. We couldn't rescue ourselves. Nobody else could rescue us. So He came and placed Himself under the law so that He might take us out from under the law. That's why He did what He did. So that He could give us what we could not get ourselves. And that is the right of adoption. The right of adoption. A change in name. A change in status. A change in experience. It's what happens for those that are adopted. It doesn't matter what they used to be. It doesn't matter what their birth name was. It doesn't matter what was tied to or attached to their status before they were adopted. Whenever someone's adopted, they become completely new. They receive all of the rights and the privileges and the statuses of the people or the person that is adopting them. And that is exactly what happened with all of us by means of our great promised rescue kept in Jesus. Everything we were, rebel, sinner, dead, full of darkness, completely going our own way, not seeking God in any way, all of those things can be changed and were made possible to be changed because adoption was made possible in and through Jesus. That's the gift of Christmas. It's the gift of adoption. And I know most of you here have received that. You've experienced that. That's true of you. You've got the new name. You've got the new reality and the new status. Praise God for it. Don't, don't become used to that. Let this Christmas season rekindle in your heart the miracle of adoption that is yours. You've been changed. You've been set free. You've been made new. You've been given a new name. Celebrate that. And if you have not received that gift, the gift of adoption, before you open a single Christmas gift this Christmas, let that be the gift you open because it's yours ready to open and receive right now. Think about this amazing fact that the one who created all of life, the one who who created all the cells in our bodies, the one that David wrote about in Psalm 139, that knit us together in our mother's womb, that ordained every day in his book before we had a single day of life, the very one who did all of that actually became a baby, became someone that was contained within his mother's womb. The one who knit all of us together in our mother's womb also experienced what it was to be in his mother's womb and to be born. And he was born also that he could give us the ability to be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. Hebrews chapter 2 Verses 14 and 15, the author there takes this same concept and goes further with it, provides even more reason behind all of this, and the implications are incredibly profound. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, here's what he says. Because God's children, this is from the NLT, so it might sound a little bit different from what you're reading. Hebrews 2, 14-15, NLT says this, "...because God's children are human beings, 
made of flesh and blood, the Son, that's Jesus, also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die. That makes sense, right? Very logical here. God, in His own divinity, without doing something to add to His divinity, could not possibly die. Divinity doesn't die. So He had to do something about that. Something that would allow Him to actually die. That's what He did. He became flesh and blood. That was the solution. Only as a human being could He die. And only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way, by doing that, by becoming humankind, by becoming a man, a person, and becoming man so that he could die, only by doing that, only in this way, verse 15, could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying, which is every single human to ever live. We're, we're born dying. We're born actually immersed in death because we are born into sin and we are born immersed in sin and saturated by it. And along with that comes this inherent constant fear of death. Death holds an enormous weight over us and an enormous amount of power. And it's all tied to sin. The reason we fear death is because we have sin all around us and in us. We're saturated by it. We're immersed in it. And so death and sin are completely tied together. That's why Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. It's tied together. We pursue sin. We choose sin. We work the work of sin. And so death is the result. But Romans 6.23 also says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is exactly how that came about. By Him becoming flesh and blood, giving that flesh, giving that blood in death for us to free us from the power of death that we inherited and that we walk in. That's the glory and the wonder and the miracle and the beauty of Christmas. Here's another promise. Here's another promise for you. This was all, everything we've we've just talked about, you've heard from me, everything that I've been saying up to this point, it's all been tied to the first advent. The first advent of Christ. That's what we're celebrating right now. That's what all these decorations are about. That's what this entire season really is is about it's about that first advent it's about looking back looking back and and remembering that the promise was kept the promise of rescue the promise of light like we talked about last week the promise of presence everything that we needed restored that sin broke and destroyed it was all kept we're looking back at the promise kept of the messiah coming for the first time But here's another promise that's looking ahead. God promises this through His Word, through His 
servant Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes this in Romans 16, 20. He says, The God of peace. Isn't that a great title for God? The God of peace. Jesus, certainly we know, is peace Himself. He's peace manifest. He's the Prince of Peace. Paul says, the God of peace will soon, and I would caution you, uh, make sure you, you see that word soon and understand that's as God defines soon. Okay, That's His timetable, His perfect timing. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, that great serpent, that great deceiver, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Last week, we focused on the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. But we also talked about the fact that He said to us in Matthew 5 that you are the light of the world. In other words, all who are His followers, all that are His true disciples, if you're in Christ, then you also are the light of the world, reflecting His light to the world. The promise to Adam and Eve was... Even though all that has happened is horrible and tragic and undeniably terrible, there is hope. There is one that that is coming who will take this serpent that has deceived you and He will crush him under His foot. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus at the cross eternally. It was a done deal. However, here and now, in this world and in this this current reality, and in our fleshly experience, we're still dealing with the ramifications of that choice in the garden, and certainly we're still dealing with the strategies and the tactics and the attacks of the enemy, right? We'd all agree with that. I don't think we have to be convinced of that. It's pretty obvious. Satan is still at work. He's been defeated. Positionally, he's been defeated. But he still has the ability to bring about all sorts of destruction and discouragement. And he knows that that his time is short indeed. He's certainly on borrowed time and he's making the most of it. And we're still dealing with that. We're still in that part of the thread where his influence is still felt. But there is coming a day. There is coming another reality. It's already reality. We just haven't caught up to it yet. It's already real. It's already a fact. We just haven't caught up to it. That there will be a time where the God of peace will once again come on display and enter into all that is lacking with peace that is our experience. All of our chaos. All of our disorder. And He will crush Satan finally, fully, forever under our feet. And then, as if to say, until that time, Paul finishes by saying this, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Who is Jesus? What is His title that we focus in on so much this time of year? What is He? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. And so, until such a time as the great deceiver and our great enemy, which is still attacking us and throwing things at us that rob us of peace, until such a time as He is crushed under our feet by the God of peace, 
the great promise is that the grace of our Lord Jesus Emmanuel Himself will be with us to sustain us until such a time as Satan is finally crushed. And that, that is what unites us with the ancients that waited for the first advent of the Messiah. That's the hope and promise we have now and wait to be fulfilled. We have it now. We have that hope and that promise. It's real for us now, but we're also at the same time waiting for it to be finally fulfilled. And friends, it's not an empty hope. It is not an empty hope. The hope we have, it's not empty. The promise that we have, it's not without power. Because all the promises pointing to Christ were kept. All of them. All the promises and all the prophecies that we didn't even begin to scratch the surface of. All those things that God throughout the centuries told His people, wait, wait, this isn't the end. Wait, this isn't the end of your story. Wait, hope's coming. Hope is real. Wait, I promise, I promise, I promise. All those things were fulfilled perfectly and completely in Jesus. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And because of that, because of that, here's the, here's the really practical application. Because all those other promises, all those previous promises were kept and fulfilled in Jesus at His coming, at His first advent. That's what Christmas is all about. Because of that, hear me, listen, there is every reason to believe and know that this promise that we just read, Romans 16.20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, there's every reason to believe and know that that promise and every other promise related to the Messiah's second advent, the second coming of Christ, our Savior, there's every reason to believe and to know that it will happen. It will It's a sure thing. It's just as much reality as the reality of His first coming was. And it's going to happen in the Father's perfect time just like the first advent did. Just like Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4. When the time came to completion, at just the right time, God sent His Son. And at just the right time, He's going to once again look at His Son and He's going to say, go get them. Go get them. Go get your bride. Go get your bride, son. And that's what we look for. That's what we long for. And that's what we wait for. But in the meantime, we have hope. We have a living, sure hope. And we have a power that that no one else can give us and that no one else can take from us. No circumstances, no enemy, no difficulty, no fear can rob you unless you allow it to rob you of the peace that is yours because of the indwelling Emmanuel. So take that with you today. Take that with you tomorrow. And remember, that's what Christmas is all about. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for Your Word.
I thank you for the power of it. I thank you for the power of hope and the power of promise. All of which are centered in and maintained by your Son, Jesus. Because He came, we have hope. Because He came, all your promises were kept. And Father, because He came and we have so much undeniable record of that, case after case after case of of prophecies being fulfilled down to the smallest detail that nobody else could ever have done. Because of that, we have every reason to believe and know that He is coming again because You've promised that. You promised He would come and He did. You promised that He will come again and He will. Father, may that give us the hope we need to face every tomorrow You give us. And may that be the hope that sustains us right now in this minute. Thank You for the promise of Messiah and the promise of rescue that is in Him. Thank You for the promise of light in the midst of darkness that was given in the light of the world, Your Son. Thank You for the promise of restored presence with You that sin interrupted and broke but it didn't completely destroy it, and Jesus brought it back, and He allowed us to be in Your presence again. Emmanuel is truly God with us, and He is always with us. And it's all because of Your Spirit that that's true. So help us to walk in Your Spirit. Help us to meet with You by Your Spirit. Help us to hope in You by Your Spirit. And it's all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.